If you've got a Bible with you, could you uh, hold it up so that I can see? I'm on a new mission, actually, to introduce a new app to the church. It's called a paper Bible. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know what you're going to do with this Bible today, but whatever you're doing, hold it up. But th this, this book here um, is totally saturated with the issues of persecution. You know, in the Old Testament, we've got the prophets and the patriarchs with tribes that have been subjected to slavery and injustice and persecution. And particularly the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament. The New Testament was written by persecuted Christians for persecuted Christians in the context of persecution. Would you like me to say that one more time? <laughs> The New Testament was written by persecuted Christians for persecuted Christians in the context of persecution. Now, if you don't read the New Testament particularly that way, you're missing out on something of the most significant um, magnitude. Because, of course, the New Testament does talk about persecution. Jesus himself said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Bible also talks about the fact in 1 Corinthians 12, this profound thought that we're part of one body, and uh, the body is magnificent and wonderfully connected, but Scripture says that when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. And I've spent the last 20 years talking to Christians around the UK and Ireland and indeed around the world about this subject, because there is undeniably, undisputably, a, a disconnect between the church in the persecuted world and the church in the freer world. So let me explode one misconception that actually there isn't a persecuted church and a freer church. There's only one church. Did you get that? And so this mission that I'm on, that Open Doors is on particularly, is to bring about this divine connect. Because in my mind at the moment, I'm thinking of people in Afghanistan that are meeting together in ones and twos in North Korea, which is the most persecuted nation on earth for Christians today. There's 100,000 of our brothers and sisters in gulag situations because they've been identified as being light carriers, messengers of Jesus. So this black book is really profound and significant. Yeah, great. And you know, I know you go all around the, the world and uh, how people, and you just mentioned a few places there and that sort of mm. stuff. And I know a few folks here uh, got a particular interest in, in, in the Middle East yeah. and um, Syrian refugees and that sort of stuff. And I know mm. that you've been to Lebanon mm. uh, two or three times last year, just back from Jordan. Mm. Uh, it, from your perspective, what's going on there? What's the population of Cambridge? How many people live here? 220,000? Yeah, can you imagine a refugee camp in the north of Jordan with that number of people? And they're living in 40 degrees of heat. It's illegal for them to work. They can't leave that facility. It's a boiling cauldron of all kinds of profound social issues and dangers, but it's also a cauldron for fundamentalism and extremism. And so to be able to see that with your own eyes, that kind of level of suffering had the greatest um, impact upon me. But also in Amman, there's a community of 7,000 Christians from Iraq that have just come over the border and the government, they're not caring for them. And Jordan is peppered with some really significant, really great churches, but they're all we churches. Sorry, do you know that word we? <laughs> Infinitesimal, minute, small, we. And um, they've undergone this kind of reformation of thought because over these last 10 years or so as I've traveled around the Middle East, I remember Cairo 10 years ago that looked like a suburb of Paris. Now today, women go about in hijabs and they have got to be accompanied in the streets and there's this intensity. You're see, beginning to see some of those stirrings actually in, in Jordan in of itself. But over these years, you know, I've seen a church that has stood against the darkness of being a, a minority 
Um, but particularly in the battle environments, you know, inside Syria itself, the church has actually reinvented itself. And uh, in Lebanon, also, what I've seen is a small church that's almost been as if in a nuclear bunker all of these years. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit has fallen these communities of faith, and they've become centers of compassion. Mm. And so in Jordan and in Lebanon particularly, I've been in situations preaching where in front of me, there have been 200 women seated on the right in hijabs, born-again Christians, and sitting on the other side of the room, 200 men that have become Christians are in the process because the church has opened its heart. It's actually become what it was meant to be. But also what I've seen particularly inside Syria is that, you know, I'm thinking of a Baptist church in Aleppo this morning was praying for them when I was enjoying that wonderful worship. Their church is Syriac Orthodox, Pentecostals, Roman Catholics, Baptists, brethren that have come together because there's nobody left you're getting 70 and 80 and 90-year-old brothers and sisters walking through sniper alleys to come to church in the morning because they want to be with God's people. What a privilege that is to be able to be part of that and to minister into it. And so out of the rubble and out of the rage and the anguish, there is a chink of light that is significant. And I've come today not to persecute you. I've come today to encourage you about something of the most significant profundity that we need to get involved in, get praying into, and yeah, get involved definitely. in. Yeah, yeah. yeah so sort of picking that up, I suppose, the final question is, how do we get involved? What, is, what, what we can do? What can we pray for? Yeah, I've, I've come with a special mission today because over the last two years, we've been talking to leaders in the Middle East about what's going to happen when the killing stops. Now, please, God, it will stop soon. I've no idea when that day will come, but we've asked them to say, what can we do in the West that has got integrity, spiritual integrity, political integrity, and with a sense of the prophetic, what do they want us to do here? Before I share this with you, I've brought a piece of memorabilia from my office. Would you give this a round of applause? This is a hugely historic <laughs> document. Five years ago, I went to the United Nations and I spent some time with a delegation from Open Doors and met Ban Ki-moon's uh, justice uh, advisor. And we presented him with a petition from around the world of Open Doors. We're in 26 nations where we can talk about the persecution of Christians. And, well, 428,000 signatures. There was a piece of legislation going through the UN that would have impacted very seriously upon Christians' lives in restricted nations. And thankfully, the piece of legislation was overturned because of this action taken by Christians. But the profound thing that I want you to hear is that uh, this gentleman, the justice advisor, said, we never hear from you Christians. We never hear from you. Now today I come with a, a mission to raise a million signatures about what's going to happen in the Middle East next. Our brothers and sisters have said to us that they want us to petition for the right of equal citizenship for Christians in Syria and Iraq and the nations of the Middle East. Why are they doing that? Because they've never enjoyed the status of equal citizenship. The second issue is that they want us to plead and petition for dignified living conditions for Christians across the Middle East. You might think that that's a pitiful thing, but if you were to travel with me, you would know why they're petitioning for it. And lastly, and I think of the most significant magnitude, they're asking that Christians would play a prominent role in reconciling and rebuilding the societies of the Middle East. Now, would you be prepared today to put your signature on the line for that? That's a rhetorical question. <laughs> yes. Okay, would you be prepared to do that? Yeah. Uh, David, one of my senior colleagues, is here today with a small team to support you in doing this.
we think that the church must speak up. We've been silent for far too long. Actually, far too silent in the United Kingdom as well, by the way. But that's another issue that we don't have time to get into today. But here is an opportunity for you to act. And there's a little incentive. I wonder if any of you know who Brother Andrew is. Okay, some of the wiser, older uh, generation like myself. But he wrote this extraordinary book called God Smuggler about an ordinary man who God spoke to, gave a vision to take Bibles into the Cold War era zones of Poland, Czechoslovakia. It's an amazing book about how God uses an ordinary person. And we want to give you one of these. We were 60 years of age last year. And uh, so if you've already got one, Andrew has written a brand new chapter at the end. It's a prophetic word to the churches in our nation. Love you to have one of these. It's a gift from me to you. And also, if you sign the petition, there's a little uh, bracelet. Uh, put that on your wrist. Okay. It's actually not barbed wire. I know he's a tough guy. Um, but the intention is just to help you remember to pray uh, for Christians in the Middle East. So I hope I've communicated that with uh, reasonable passion and conviction and that you're stirred that when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. And this is a very practical and real and significant way. And I promise you in my word of honor that we will take these signatures and we will knock on the door of the United Nations and we will speak up for those who have no voice. Fantastic, fantastic. So Eddie's uh, kicking off our new series today called Love Come Down, and uh, so I'm going to leave him to uh, crack on with that. Great, thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone. Would you just stand, please, please? Uh, we pronounce that uh, I go away, that we pray, and uh, I was just delighted when I went into the world of the, the Middle East when I saw Christians pray. They hold their hands out in front of them like this. It's a sign of worship. Your heart is saying to God, here I am. But you're also saying this morning that I'm willing to be willing. I want to hear your voice. I, I give you permission to speak into my heart and my life, my intellect, my priorities, my values. I want this vessel, this jar of clay uh, to be filled with your presence and the provocation of your word. So just a moment of silence for you to pray those thoughts. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you here into this amazing place this morning. We offer our lives to you we want to hear your voice. We give you permission to provoke us and to make us think. And Jesus, I pray your blessing upon my brothers and sisters today that we will leave this place very different people because love has come down. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be seated, please. You know, I've just had this, this flashback, um, and there's a confession contained within this next thought that I have to share with you. But when I travel around the world, one of the problems that I have as a small man is that when you walk up onto a platform like this, lecterns can sometimes be profoundly challenging. <laughs> uh, in other words, they're up here, and you're behind them. And, the moment the thought came to me was I was speaking in northern India recently. Uh, my audience was 300 pastors that all had five weeks theological training, and there were leading churches of over 300. And uh, on this morning, I'd been asked to meet a small delegation of 20 of them that I would work with. And every single one of them had been stoned and beaten and thrown out of the villages where they'd taken the light and the love of Jesus to. And I said to them, uh, can I pray for you? And immediately they fell to the ground on their knees. 
and I, I didn't know what else to do, so I got down on the ground with them. And uh, they wanted me to pray a prayer of commissioning over them because at the end of the conference, they were going to go back to the places that had been thrown out of. And they needed a special anointing of the Holy Spirit. So that's what happened to me before I went to the lectern. And you can imagine what kind of an emotional condition I was in. And I stood in front of an audience of a thousand people, lovers of Jesus in this remote community. And as I came up to the lectern, it was an Anglican church. I'm an Anglican, by the way. I can't apologize anymore, but I am. And uh, I came up to the, the front, and um, as I approached the, the lectern, it was about five feet, 10 inches tall, and I thought this is gonna be very interesting for the next half hour. But there was a moment, and the, the dear minister at the front pointed to my shoes, and he said, dear brother Eddie, you've got your shoes on. I thought to myself, yes, I do. And he said, please, would you take them off? You're about to speak the holy word of God. I'm standing in front of you this morning with my shoes on, but actually they're off. Because it's a fearful thing for a man uh, to speak about the Lord Almighty. I do think he has something profound to say to us this morning. I want to ask you a rhetorical question. Do you love this book? Right, do you think that was a fitting response? So, do you love this black book? 774,747 words in this black book. 66 individual revelations written by men under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, commissioned by the Lord Almighty to communicate His truth and his revelations to humankind, written by 40 of those individuals over a landscape of 1,500 years of human history to mankind. And if there was to be a meta-theme, a banner over this revelation of God's heart to humankind, it is this message. This is the anthem, love came down. Now, if I was speaking in a black church this morning, we'd already be on our feet, and we'd already be celebrating, and we'd already be inspired, because we're the people who've had the revelation. We've been impacted by that love that has come down and has touched our lives and has changed us and metamorphosized us, or it should have metamorphosized us into people who've been touched by the love of Almighty God. I'm inspired by this. I've been walking with this Savior for over 40 years, and I'm even more in love with him today than I was when I started this journey, because I know more of the consequences and the impact of what it means for love to come down. This morning, because I'm an Anglican, I'm going to ask you to kind of work with me. You're going to need your mobile phones at the end of this message, just as a thought. So turn the ringer off, but keep it on. Is that all right? Are you prepared to cooperate with me? That's so terribly kind. That's why I came. So, this idea of shining, I want to try and contextualize this into the world of the persecuted church. What are the consequences of people who love the Lord God Almighty with all their heart and with all their mind and with all their soul? They're passionate about being imitators of this Christ who came to die for them. They're desperate for the light to shine. They're desperate for this message of love coming down to radiate from their lives and to make them significant in the purposes and the kingdom of God. Now, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 5, the 14th verse. Now, take a moment just to let these words wash over you. If you don't have your app on and you don't have the blessing of a paper Bible, I will read it for you in beautiful, exquisite Irish. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. 
Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, Eugene Peterson, uh, a very eminent North American theologian, wrote this extraordinary paraphrase called The Message. I don't know if you've come across it. Put your hand if you have. This is the way that he offers a perspective on that seminal, profound piece of Scripture. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think that I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine, keep open house, be generous with your lives by opening up to others. You'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. And we pray that God blesses that reading of his word. You know, I love this idea of shining. And I love that idea of us being God colors in our world. Isn't that remarkable? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for persecuted Christians? I'm a bit of a traveler. This is Mont Saint-Michel in France when I was praying about how to communicate this to you today. I had this vision of this incredible piece of French architecture. Here it is in the darkness, in the light, and here it is in the dark. Isn't it beautiful? It's magnificent. It's transformational in the way that it just takes upon itself a new beauty in the darkness. And John 1, again, talks profoundly about this word coming in. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So love has come down in human form. And this is where you become Anglicans in this nanosecond. Are you ready? I'm going to say the top line in small language, and then I want you to be very Cambridge-like and say the thing, next phrase at the top of your voice. Are you willing to be willing? Yeah. Sorry, I can't hear you. Are you willing to be willing? Yeah. Okay, we are a city on a hill. And could we do that with a modicum of enthusiasm? All right, so we are a city on a hill. So, I want to take you this morning for a few moments to four places where the God colors have started to infect and affect the environments within which God has placed these extraordinary people, just ordinary people. You know, some people try to deify persecuted Christians and see them as kind of supermen and superwomen. That's not what they want. My experience has been of just very ordinary, beautiful people in love with Jesus, just wanting to let their light shine. Now, there are 50 nations where the church is most persecuted. Indonesia is number 43 on that list. And here are three extraordinary women, Eti, Rebecca, and Ratna. Rebecca is in the blue on the right. She's a general practitioner, senior pastor of a church in Indramayo in northern Indonesia, which is a predominantly Islamic fundamentalist community, this small church of 30 people. They've been doing a Bible study about Matthew 5, came completely affected, infected by that thought about what does it mean to be light carriers, God colors in their world. And so they decided to develop an outreach to the children of street vendors and prostitutes in Indramayo. And because Rebecca was a general practitioner, she got certificates from the Department of Education and Health and other environmental agencies to make sure that she was doing things beyond reproach. And they actually had letters 
from the parents of the 12 children that they were caring for on a regular basis. So what was the Sunday school or the happy club as they called it? Well, Rebecca provided medical support for the kids. The two other mothers played games. They gave them a good square meal. Uh, they had fun together. They introduced them to the stories of Jesus and it was a really beautiful thing. But what you don't know is that in Dramayo, that there's the largest college of imams in the entire Far East, and it has strong fundamentalist uh, orientations. And they were outraged that these Christians would have the audacity to do such a thing. So there was a major show trial. In the courtroom on that day, there were 400 extremists that they'd bust in and paid. And the whole thing became a sham trial. But when the judges who were presiding over this court, three of them got up in the morning, had their breakfast, went out through the front door of their houses, there were three prepared coffins for each judge that had been deposited there in the night hours with their name and address, the telephone numbers of the judge and his wife, the place where the children went to school. Quite an intimidating piece of behavior, do you think? It's not surprising that those women were put in prison for five years for the Christianization of 12 children. I visited them in Indramayo State Penitentiary. Here they are, behind bars. One of the most intense experiences in my entire life. When they went into Juanita, block, which is a women's unit. There were 470 men in this prison, a mosque and four full-time imams caring for the men. Inside prison block Winita, there were nine women, two Al-Qaeda terrorists, one murderer, two prostitutes, and some very dysfunctional women. The prison cells that they were put into, every single one of them were in a desperate condition. Prison guards could only go in in fours with full body armor. These women were so dysfunctional and they put three Sunday school teachers there. The walls were covered in excrement and urine. And when they went into the prison, they just couldn't even cope with the smell. So they asked for boiling water and disinfectant and used their own clothes as cloths to clean the cells of the other prisoners before they cleaned their own. They gave their own food because in Indonesia you don't have UK conditions and they gave their food away and cooked them the first decent meal that they'd had in months. This is where these saints of God were put because they were shining for Jesus. At the end of the fourth week, a prison guard came to Rebecca and said, I have extreme abdominal pains. I don't earn very much. I don't know what to do with this. Can you help me? You're a doctor. And she said, I'm no longer a doctor. I'm a criminal. My practice certificate has been taken away from me. But if you're in this level of pain, then I'll tell you which medication to go and get, and if you need more help, please come back to me. I think that's an act of extreme generosity. Would you agree with me? At the end of the eighth week, the prison guards had a separate room for Rebecca, and she was providing health care support for every prison officer and their wives. At the end of the third month, the chief superintendent of the prison said to Rebecca in a meeting with the other two, we were told that you were insurgents and we were really quite anxious that you were going to destabilize the entire prison. That's what we'd been told, but you've been a blessing. How would it be if you bring your church to prison on Sunday and we will protect you and you can worship the Lord God of your heart to your content and this will be a safe place because you have been such a huge blessing. I think you should give a round of applause to the Lord for his goodness. But for 14 hours every day they were in solitary confinement and they went to bed at night with empty arms where each of them had three children and a husband. And this was a very difficult pastoral situation to enter into because by the time we reached them, I brought some women, some 
people with unique pastoral skills, some legal advisors, to try and help and encourage them about how things were going to shape over the next few years. And in the first meeting with them, here I am inside the visitor center. It's 43 degrees of heat, and here are 2,700 letters written to Christians in prison. Have you ever written to a Christian who's been persecuted in prison? Three weeks after, I was telling this story in Sheffield, and a woman screamed out at the top. I'm quite used to women screaming in my meetings. It happens all the time, in actual fact. But she said, there's the card that I sent. And she walked up to the screen and pointed to it. What a beautiful testimony. And children had written and sent them letters, and it gave them encouragement. Is this touching your heart? It jolly well should do. This is significant. And they said, we feel so lonely and we feel isolated. But still, when we were worshiping the Lord on that Sunday when I was preaching, out of the prison cells, you could see literally hundreds of men's arms hanging out the prison bars as they were listening the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached in that Sunday. And I took them the sacraments and we had bread and wine together the first time that they'd had Holy Communion. It was a really beautiful experience. I washed their feet and reminded them that they were not forgotten, that they were the beloved of Christ. Rebecca took me for a walk and she said, can you see the prison bars? And I said, yes, I can. She also gave me some health advice that I should lose two stone and weight and take salt out of my diet. That's what happens when you walk around a prison with a doctor, really. Um, but then she looked up at me. She was a diminutive person. I'm, I'm, a small, I'm a tall person in the Far East, by the way. Um, she looked up at me and she said, do you know Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6? I said, yes, Rebecca, I do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. She said, this is my university of trust. Every beat of my heart, I've got to trust him. That my husband will stay faithful to me. That my children will not reject me. They're ashamed of me because I'm now a criminal. But I've got to put my trust in the Lord. Well, thanks to people like you, she was let out of prison along with the other two, two and a half years into her internment. Here are the release images, sorry, going in the wrong direction. We've lost our orientation, hold on one second. This is them getting out of prison on a Friday with their families waiting. And on the Monday, they went back to disciple the 47 people that they had led to Jesus and kept on visiting them. Why did they do that? Because they were a city on a hill. We are a city on a hill. Should we try that one more time? We are a city on a hill. And they did that because love came down. Now we're going to Pakistan, which is number six on the World Watch list. My first experience in Lahore for a week, I took 100 evidence statements of Christians that had been persecuted. I saw things that were deeply disturbing. One man that I'll remember for all of my life stood with his 12-year-old beside him and told me the story about how she had been gang raped so that he would leave the community and let someone have his business premises. And he said to me, I want to shine for Jesus. Please, could you tell me how I should do that? See, this is where it starts to get challenging. This is where it starts to get really real. This isn't about the memorization of scripture as significant as that is. This is about digging deep in God because love has come down. As I prepared to leave, they said, please don't go home yet. Your flight is at six in the morning and it's only 12 o'clock at night. We've got something more for you to do. 
We've got two evangelists that have traveled for 14 hours to see you because they want the blessing of your prayer before they go back to minister. Here they are. He's 78. She's 74. They're evangelists. Evangelists are really unique people. They're very special people. But I was captivated by the thought of how does a 70-year-old do evangelism in a predominantly Islamic stronghold area? So they told me their story, that every Wednesday they went to the market in their community, and this is what their market looks like. And they get an orange box. Do you know what an orange box is? It's not a political statement. It's a wooden box in which you put oranges. And she lifts him onto the orange box, and he plays his three favorite hymns. And then she lifts him down, and he lifts her up. And she tells the story of the night that a man in white appeared to her and told her that he was Jesus and that he was the way, the truth, and the life and that he had come to save her and love her. And she immediately gave her heart to Jesus Christ. And so on Wednesdays, they stood in the market. He played his hymns. She told the story about how the man in white came. Love came down and saved her soul. And then they gave out Bibles and led people to Jesus. Is that not beautiful? Extraordinary, beautiful, exquisite. And then they told me the story just two weeks before that men with long beards came into the market and they were very angry at what they were doing and they followed them at home. And when night fell, their door was kicked in and this man in a balaclava came screaming into their house with a whole group of men. They punched the old man unconscious. They got her by her arms. They pushed her to the floor. The man with the balaclava came with a cudgel and brought the cudgel down on her head and shouted, Allah, wakba. But as the cudgel was about one inch from her head, an invisible hand stopped him. And the glory of God invaded the area, their living room, and pushed the assailants onto the floor. And they were paralyzed. They'd never encountered anything like this before in their entire lives. They crawled out into the night and they left screaming because they were terrified by the presence of Almighty God. But being the inquisitive little Irishman that I am, I said, what did you do on the Wednesday, the next Wednesday? Because that's the significant question, isn't it? And she said, we went back to the market and he stood on the orange box and played his three favorite hymns. And I gave my testimony and we led people to Jesus. For if God is for us, who can be against us? Because love has come down. We are a city on a hill. Lord Jesus, shine through us. Now this is the tender part of today's talk, if the other two illustrations are not sufficiently potent. This is Edward, Brother Edward. He leads the Christian Missionary Alliance Church in Damascus City right on the fault line between the warring factions. Syria is number five. Here is his beautiful wife, Rana. They're part of my family. I love them. I know their kids. I know where they went to school. I know what they have for breakfast. We talk regularly. We are brothers. But this is where he does church today. A bomb arrived on the roof of the building next door to them four weeks ago. This was the impact, but they're still there. Bibles have been destroyed. The community has been scattered. But out of the ashes of all of this, he told me of this incident, and they took a photograph of it. The woman at the top left-hand corner said to him recently, we have you Christians have become remarkable people to us. We have Allah in heaven, but we've got you Christians on earth. There's a story starting to emerge out of the chaos of that experience. We have Allah in heaven, but we've got you Christians on earth. 
Those communities would never have met before had it not been for this dreadful episode. And Christians feel as though they're light in this community. I strongly uh, urge you to listen very carefully to Edward's words. He wrote to me uh, recently and said this. So those values of competing for power and for enforcing our values and those values of killing people because they are not like me, they are not after my own image, are very evil values. And our battle is that we as ambassadors of Christ, we will spread the values of heaven and the values of Christ. So, instead of revenge, we spread forgiveness. Instead of hatred, we spread love. Instead of killing, we're giving life. So it's our responsibility. The Lord put on the church this privilege and responsibility to express those values even if they pay a price for that, even if that is costly sometimes. But we need to stay here for the light to stay here, for the divine values to stay here, for the saving love of Christ to stay here. People need a savior. Who can present the savior for them other than the church? People who are looking for hope and peace. There's no other source of real hope and real peace other than Christ. And the other people who carry this burden and who have this privilege are the people of God, the church of the living God. So we are staying here as ambassadors and we are so privileged to be here for that reason. Love has come down and they can't go anywhere else. Here's a letter from a pastor's wife. Attacks on churches happen a lot now. They are targeting us. So many of us have been killed or kidnapped. When they kidnap someone, they ask their families for a ransom or force them to convert to Islam. Women are often raped and come back traumatized. Someone I know came back from a kidnapping and hasn't spoken a word since. No one knows what happened to her. People wonder why we're staying in Syria when we have a family and opportunities abroad. Honestly, I ask myself the same question time after time. As a mother and a wife, I want to leave, but as a Christian, I have to stay. Every time my husband and I pray, God gives us a burden on our heart to stay in Syria. He has things for us to do here. But I ache at the thought of what it might cost us. When we had a really good option to leave but decided to stay, we knew that we were doing something serious. I said to the Lord, we are ready to do whatever you want us to do. I expected him to give me something courageous to do or that people would start knocking on the door and asking about Jesus. But instead he asked, will you die for me? I prayed and fasted for one day. Then he said, yes, I will put myself on the altar. Then he asked me, how about your husband? Can you give me his life? I prayed and fasted again. Eventually I said, yes, Lord, you can have my husband. I will put him on the altar. Finally, Jesus said, and how about your children? Will you give me your daughters? My husband and I prayed and fasted. It was very hard. Eventually we thought, at least our children know God. At least they will go to heaven. It was very difficult, but finally we were able to say, okay, Lord, we will give you our children. We will put our daughters on the altar. Then we thought, 
if we have given our children to Jesus, we need to prepare them to die well for him too. I took them out the front door and got them to look up and down the street. I said, one day a bomb may hit or someone may come down the street and put a sword to your throat. Don't say what they want you to say. They will try to persuade you to become a Muslim. Don't say anything about Islam. Just say that you forgive them and tell them that Jesus loves them. You might be in pain for an hour. There will be blood, but then you will be in Jesus in heaven. As a family, we talk a lot about heaven. God will bless Syria. I know this for sure. He's already blessing us. Every time we go to church, the church is full. People come together in times of despair. We, we also see new faces every time. People who weren't Christians before the war, they say, we've lost everything. Our house, our job, our family. But we've gained the most important thing, the knowledge of the wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. I feel God tangibly. Really, as though he was hugging me, holding my hand. We're still very scared though. We don't know if someone is planning to kidnap us. We want to be free from fear. Please, will you pray for us? Please, will you pray for us? The only reason that they stay is because love has come down. The only reason they stay is because this isn't just an intellectual, cognitive thing that's happened in their minds, but they've been touched by the love of Jesus. Those candles that were lit at the beginning are flickering. The church is in its Gethsemane. When one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. But that will require you to pray a very difficult prayer that we might be one. I wonder if the worship team would come and join me, please. Have you got your mobile phones handy? This is a 21st century appeal for you to do something very practical and turn the light on in your phone. And when I say to you, we are a city on a hill, maybe you would turn your phone on. But don't do it trivially. Do it very sensibly. I haven't got to the stage yet where I know how to turn the light on on my phone, but I'm hoping that you certainly do. But would you stand? I'd like you to uh, put your hand over your heart again. And I want you to take just a few moments of silence to play through those images of the faces that you've been introduced to today because they are unequivocally, biblically, your family. We are one. And I'd like you to pray quietly that the Holy Spirit will come to you give you the ability to open your heart this morning and receive them as your family. Not in a moment of impulse, but this is as you journey forward. We've been divided for too long. Now it's time for the family to come together. The hearts of the fathers would turn to the children. The hearts of the mothers would turn to the children. Indeed, the hearts of the children turn to their brothers and sisters and their mothers and fathers in the faith, not only in this church, but across the whole world. That's why Jesus came. The costliest of all sacrifices, love came down in the form of a human baby. And he walked with us and he understood us. He healed us. He wiped away our tears. He signposted us 
to a different way to live and then he hung himself willingly upon a cross for the sin of the world for generations forward for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life that was the cost of why Jesus came love came down and the family needs you now and actually I believe that you need them too so please ask for the grace of the Holy Spirit to come to you with integrity we can say we are a city on a hill Lord Jesus shine through me you might want to hold your phone up as a symbol of submission that you want the light of your life now to shine in this special season that the light of your prayers would shine into Damascus today into Lahore today, into Indonesia today. Say that again. We are a city on a hill. Lord Jesus, shine through me. So Father, this morning I pray for the blessing, your blessing upon this assembly of your people. Lord Jesus, it was your prayer that we might be one. Lord, begin that insurrection of light that the God colors would shine through us in our community where we live today, that we might be inspired by the example of our brothers and sisters, that nothing would stop us shining for you in the world that we live. And that you'd help us use the gift of freedom that we have to speak up for those who have no voice, and that this petition will advance the kingdom in the time that you have placed us to your glory. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening.